following program is intended for mature audiences. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. It's Big Boom Radio Friday, people, so it's time once again for the Big Boom Radio podcast, Riffs and Rants, with Johnny Teflon and Michael Sean Lee. Both barrels, both sides, and a lot of good music, too. All I know is this violates every canon of respectable broadcasting. Indeed it does, my friend. Indeed it does. And we'll be right back, folks, after the first gem of the day. Dive. 
drive, baby. That was interesting. Did it take you back? I'm, I'm not sure where it took me, quite honestly. <laughs> it definitely took me somewhere. I'm still trying to figure out where the hell that was. Well, for me, uh, it, it takes me back. Well, let's just say that song is by Susie Quattro. Yeah. Who became famous doing that song as an imaginary character on Happy Days, name of Leather Tuscadero, Leather Tuscadero. little sister her. to yeah. Pinky Tuscadero. Pinky, yeah, yeah. Um, friends of Fonzie. Friends, yeah, yeah, friends with benefits of Fonzie. <laughs> and uh, she, in this episode, performed that song in what was, I believe, like 1964. Yeah, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. Actually, so it I sounds think it was, a little was, more glam yeah. rock than they were used to back then. Yeah, but. probably. I think it was actually late <laughs> late nineteen fifties Wisconsin, and yeah, we took a little uh, a creative uh, liberty on that yeah, one. I think yeah. the producers did. Well, the kids won't know. They just want to hear Susie Quattro. They don't yeah. care. <laughs> you know, and it's and it's it's funny because I do remember Susie Quattro, mm-hmm. and you know, it's it's odd because every time I hear Susie Quattro, I hear Joan Jett. Gotcha. Even though Joan Jett came after Susie Quattro, sure, and sure. you know, I hesi- I wouldn't hesitate to say was very influential on sure. a very young Joan very Jett. Very similar. Got to be, got to be the situation here. And know? now the uh, you know the people at home scratching their heads. <laughs> Why the hell did they start what the with hell that? Is that? And where yeah, where is this going? Well, uh, let's give them this much and leave them waiting for more. Let's do that. This episode and the finest tradition of the Riffs and Rants podcast yes. is all about the music. Yes, some might say it's a very special episode. <laughs> well, you know, everybody needs a break from current events every now and again, and yes. that is. And has always been the bottom line to the Riffs and Rants podcast. Right, right. Is the a lot of good music too part. Sure. And, and, and last week, uh, with the help of my good friend John James, we did an episode that was all about you know pop culture type stuff, pro yeah. wrestling, Ghostbusters, eighties, you name it. Yeah, we should take a moment not to uh, to our good friend John James. John, thank you for keeping the chair warm for me, brother. <laughs> I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the show, and uh, so a little shout out to John. On sure, that. it was yeah. fun doing it, and I'm sure he'll be back to join us again. So tonight, we're going back to the music, and we're starting off with a fictional character, actually a real character playing a fictional character, which will be our kind of a theme for our gems this evening, which we'll get more into later. Yeah. For right now, our main topic, um, again, it's about the music, and it's about when music mattered to you. Yeah. When it became important, I yes, believe, yes. was the word that we threw around <laughs> uh, when we were talking about the, the framework for this particular show. Right. And the, uh, the extra bonus that comes with that is that it does kind of flesh out our respective personalities for people to kind of get to yeah. know us and where we're coming from. Yeah. Because I'm a genius. And this may sound like a generational thing. I, I don't doubt for a minute that, uh, that I'm, I'm painting myself into an old corner on this one, but uh, does it seem like to you that, that, that the music to the younger generation these days isn't quite as important to them as it was to us when we were growing up? No, you could definitely say that. Yeah. yeah. Happy times. It's, um, especially with so, Lord knows so much to protest about out there and get yeah. into. And Well, maybe it's just the way the music's being delivered these days. I mean, you know, when we were young, right. you know, here we go, another phrase that paints me as fucking old. <laughs> Um, you know, the, 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 the avenues weren't as, as uh, numerous as they are today. You mm-hmm. know, radio was a lot more uh, basic, I guess, yeah. in the way that they And much more mainstream. Yeah, very because much Because, again, so. you only had, you know, you had a country station, you might have had a, an oldie station, yep. and then you had a top 40 station. That was it. And pretty much everybody gravitated towards the top 40 station. Yeah. 
where they would convey the music of the day, which was all similar in its, in its basic message, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, easily mass consumable. Whereas today, in spite of the onslaught of mm-hmm. companies like iHeartRadio and the, the new kid on the block, Odyssey, yeah. gobbling up these stations and making them all like clones of each other. There's a station for everything, not to mention shit like us and Big Boom Radio. Yeah. It seems to be coming from a lot of different directions these days. Yeah. And, it's, and it's so segmented and it's, it's so, so micro-targeted. Yes, yes. Yeah, it, isn't, yeah it, it just doesn't come across the same way. And this is, this is probably an observation from afar. Mm. You know, I guess if, if maybe I grew up uh, the way the kids these days are growing up, uh, this would be a natural thing, the way the yeah. music comes to them. You know, whereas to me, it looks some, like some kind of bizarre mutation. Yeah, no, it really does. Where's Casey Kasem when you need him most? I'm telling you, man. This is a god, last goddamn time. I want somebody to use his fucking brain to not come out of a goddamn record that is, uh, that, that's up-tempo, and I got to talk about a fucking dog dying. <laughs> so Anyway, so yeah, back to the, uh, the important nature yeah. of music. Three instances. So we each got three, no particular order. Yeah. Why don't you start us off, sir? Uh, you know, the word, again, important... Um, I think that's the key, key, uh, key descriptor here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in talking about this pre-show, you know, one of the things we noticed was, uh, at least in my case, definitely in my case, uh, most of the incidents, incidents um, I cited uh, were when I was young. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in my early teens, or excuse me, late teens, early 20s, at a time when I, I think all of us are very, very impressionable. Sure. You know, yeah. and at a time where we, we're... You know, it's a lot easier to blow away our boundaries. Um, you know, the first thing that came to me when you, when you originally brought this up was an experience I had, this was either the summer of 85 or the summer of 86, uh, going to see Peter Gabriel for the first time. Okay. I was very familiar with Peter Gabriel from his work with Genesis. Uh, I had not seen him solo. Mm-hmm. And obviously he was, he was suffering from, a, suffering from, he was experiencing a really, really huge career resurgence. Right. Uh, courtesy of MTV and, yeah. and whatnot. He was, the guy was blowing up. And uh, obviously, you know, worth going to see, given all that was going on about him. So went to see him at an amphitheater, 17,000 17,000 seat amphitheater, uh, summertime outside, and did the show. The show was phenomenal. Uh, I remember at one point he did Lay Your Hands on Me mm-hmm. and kind of very gracefully dropped into the crowd. They passed him all around the arena and then it sat him very gently back on the stage. Mm-hmm. And it was a very interesting thing and it was all right and cool and all this. And the, the show was wrapping up and uh, he finished his, his regular stretch and it was time for the encore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of started off as a, as a rhythmic thing. And, uh, and then he came out on stage and did a song called Biko, uh, which I had heard of mm-hmm. prior to, but really didn't know that much about, was really not that familiar with it. Uh, the song was based on the life of, uh, of South African uh, anti-apartheid activist Stephen Biko, mm-hmm. who uh, unfortunately was beaten to death uh, by uh, South African police and state security officers uh, in 1987, and and in spi- or not in 87, excuse me, in uh, God, when was that? He he inspired the 1987 film Cry Freedom. Okay. I believe they killed him about 10 years prior to that. But uh, but his story inspired Peter to write this song, and uh, and what struck me, and this was the first time I had witnessed it, was the synchronous nature that the crowd reacted to it. Mm-hmm. Everybody in that arena knew the words to that song, right. every single word. And there was the you know fist pump, the synchronous fist, 
fist pump going on mm -hmm. of 17,000 people all at the same time. And I got the distinct impression at that moment, if Peter wrapped up the song and said, okay, now we're going to go out to the parking lot and we're going to burn every fucking car out there, the crowd would have done exactly that. I mean, it was an amazing moment. And, you know, like I said, it was the first time I had experienced that kind of moment in a rock right, show. Right. And it, it prompted me to go out and find out, you know, who in the hell this Stephen Biko person was, mm -hmm. read up on him. And it was kind of like an oh moment, like, wow. Right. You know, the, the, the circumstances surrounding his death and the controversial nature of it. And this was also when uh, people's attention turned to apartheid mm -hmm. in South Africa. And, uh, and really made that an issue. This was uh, shortly before the whole Amnesty International uh, tour uh, came and, and blew up with Tracy Chapman and Bruce mm -hmm. Springsteen and Sting and Peter. And uh, it was really a moment for me because I realized how potentially powerful a song could be and how it could potentially result in change. And it, it's really, really uh, telling uh, the very last line in the song, the very last lyric is, and the eyes of the world are watching now. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's heavy duty, you know? If you're a songwriter, which I eventually became, it's one of those things where it was like, damn, I wish I wrote that. Right. I really wish I wrote that. And that was arguably probably my first experience at, uh, at seeing how potentially powerful and important music could be mm. on that scale you know it was it was it was a night it was a moment right. it was really something to remember it was it was really heavy duty hmm. and uh and so when you you know when you pitched me on the idea and you used the word important right this was quite literally the first thing i thought of mm -hmm. you know? and I, I borrowed that from somebody i don't know who i don't know where but they you know they talk about you know, does the music still matter and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, and I just maybe want to like shrink it back to us in an introspective way and just come up with a couple instances where for us, um, kind of as a cause and effect leading up to this point, yeah. why are we still dealing with music, which is a very fickle mistress. Very much so. Um, you know, for me, the first one that comes to mind was uh, as a youth battling asthma and allergies and all this other debilitating crap, Yes, the doctors decided that I needed to um, build up my lung capacity. Okay. And we tried swimming. Didn't take. Yeah. <laughs> my yeah. name should be Rocky because that's how I <laughs> swim. Um, so then their next suggestion was a woodwind instrument. Ah. So we uh, batted that back and forth and I wound up playing the alto saxophone. Nice. Years later, the tenor, and I, I tried my hand at, at the baritone, which yeah. is great if you're doing a Ricola cough drop commercial. Yeah. I, got, I got to take a moment to wrap my brain around this. The young Johnny Teflon blowing sax, man. Determined. Yeah. Determined to learn yeah. this stuff. Um, I had a beautiful instrument gifted to me from a relative who was a music teacher. And, uh, you know, I was, I was good. I was good in an orchestrated setting. Like I said to you once before, I was never going to be queued up to play a sexy saxophone solo in any of the Lethal Weapon movies. Right. But I could hold my own in an orchestra playing nice. a, a part. And that experience, more than any other, um, gifted me an appreciation of the craftsmanship uh, that yeah. goes into music, whether it's a four-piece band or an orchestra, yeah. um, it gave me the fact that I, I had a sense of timing and rhythm that I otherwise didn't know that I had. Okay. And um, was, yeah, my first step into a world of music. Nice. And we'll 
That'll be more relevant later on at another example. Broke, broke but, some yeah, ground with that what, one, did That's you? exactly what it did. Yeah. And to this day, I, I do enjoy listening to classical music because my spot in the orchestra was right in front of, I remember it like it was yesterday, um, the timpani drums. Okay. Yeah. And these things, when they start booming oh, yeah. with some heavy, you know, Wagner or Stravinsky That's music. Some powerful I mean, shit. Oh, yeah. yeah. And playing in front of those, um, just really, you know, filling the whole, uh, the risers that the whole orchestra is sitting on, everything is shaking. Yeah. Um, just a great experience. And I recommend it for those same reasons to, yeah. you know, families today with, with kids that have breathing difficulties and whatnot. Get them learning an instrument. It builds up the lung capacity within a couple of years. And oh man, that's one of a, a very long list of reasons why parents should encourage kids sure. to pick up musical instruments. And in this particular case, just having done the musician thing myself for a lot of years, I got to say, there's something just super cool about right. horn players. Now I will know? dispel this rumor. Um, I can read music. I can write music. But you know what? I still suck at math. So <laughs> just throw that one in the trash, folks. <laughs> All right, all right. What else you got? Um, all right, uh, again, putting it in the context of, uh, of important, uh, the Grateful Dead. Now, I don't do drugs, though. Just weed. Mm -hmm. I had, I had a, a chunk of time from 19, uh, 1987 to 1995 where I saw an awful lot of Grateful Dead shows. Mm -hmm. And there was a very, very uh, specific reason for it. Uh, very first show I saw was July 4th, 1987. Uh, the Dead were playing with Bob Dylan. And okay. I saw him in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And it was my first uh, encounter with, uh, I guess you could say, the community um, that the Grateful Dead created around their music. Right. And it was something I had never seen prior to and unfortunately have not seen since. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of funny because... Uh, me and my buddy Joey went into the show as Bob Dylan fans. We weren't actually going to see The Grateful Dead. That wasn't that wasn't the number one thing on the agenda. Uh, we were representing Bob. Is and, that like uh, Star Trek fans going to a Star Wars premiere? Entirely possible. Just to I, the I think so. Yeah, there's definitely a parallel to it. But uh, but again, it was my first encounter with uh, Deadheads mm -hmm. and a community based around a band. Right. And, uh, you know, having, having been born and raised in the Boston area, uh, cynicism and sarcasm are in my DNA. Sure, sure. So I didn't buy into it the first time I experienced it. Uh -huh. But after going back again, because it had lit the fires of curiosity that very first time, mm -hmm. um, I came to find out that, no, this was very real. Um, what was created, what came up around this band over the years, I mean, they... They were formed in Palo Alto, California in 1965. So this was, you know, 20 years in mm -hmm. of them building this community. They created, it was almost like a safe zone right. um, around the band. And these people that participated in this community were for real. They took care of mm. each other. Uh, they really did. That was not bullshit. Now, as a, as a sidebar step back question, yeah. were you familiar, even if you hadn't seen it yet, were you familiar of like... What went on at a, at a Grateful Dead show? Like the stories about the community that follows them all over the country. Yeah, we. Okay. I mean, I think in general we had all heard the stories. So you hadn't seen you it, know? but you kind of expected something yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah, I had heard about Deadheads, right. and uh, and you know, typical of of the media, I had heard the most you know flamboyant right, right. details of, of the situation, <laughs> like free spaghetti. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> free spaghetti, free love, free acid, free everything. Free sure. everything. <laughs> and uh, and you know, I came to find out that that 
of course, that was the most superficial interpretation mm -hmm. that you could possibly make of what was going on around the Grateful Dead. But uh, it really, it was for real. Mm -hmm. You know, these people, like I said, they took care of each other. Right. And when you went to a Grateful Dead show or when you went for a Grateful Dead weekend, which was the most common thing, you know, the band had come to town and play Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, mm -hmm. you were safe. You right. know, and it was almost like it, it got to a point because I eventually went on to see 100, 150 Grateful Dead shows. Wow. Um, it, it almost felt like coming home uh -huh. every time you went, you know, and there were, there were definitely people that you only saw when you went to see a show. Right. And, uh, you know, it was so unique, that feeling. It, I, like I said, I've never seen anything like it before or since. And in my mind, that was really what the true tragedy was when Garcia passed in August of 95 mm -hmm. was the end of that experience. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I know they, they did a lot of stuff afterwards. You know, there were a lot of different versions of The Grateful Dead and whatnot. But for me, that whole thing ended when Jerry died. Right. And, uh, and it was, it was kind of sad in that respect um, because there was really something positive and beautiful and wonderful about that whole experience. And it, it gave me an idea, the idea, mm -hmm. that you could create that kind of scenario with the music. And that to me, was what made it important, important because it was so unique to society in general. Right. You know, well, like it's, it's not only nice, you know, for somebody who hasn't done it, like myself, to hear that, in fact, it is real. It is the way people describe it. But also that you as a newcomer were able to appreciate it out of the gate, your very first time there. Yeah. You were able to pick up on this vibe. And yeah, it was like, wait a minute, there's something different right. going on here. You know, this isn't your typical rock show. Right. And, uh, and it, it made you feel really good, and it made you really feel positive about life. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and you came out of it, it was a very uh, cathartic... You mean what music's supposed to do? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I get it now. You know, that cathartic <laughs> feeling you get after a really, really good experience you right. know i don't know if it's you know making love or yep, you know all is right with the world yeah exactly you came out everything was cool mm -hmm. and and you felt like whatever was pressing you down in life right. you could deal with now yep. you know and uh, and it was yeah it was a really really unique thing unto the grateful dead and it all revolved around the music right and uh, it was unique and again you know what we're talking about today it was very important gotcha well we'll go from uh cathartic to euphoric all right and that would be the first time that i saw van halen nice. with david lee roth nice in 2007 uh having been a fan for so many years having seen him do his solo stuff with the dlr band yeah but always hesitant to go see van halen with sammy hagar because it just just wasn't the same it's yeah. not the poo-poo yeah. on his contributions mm -hmm. they were one band with him they were another with dave but literally, I am not ashamed to say that as uh, I was standing there watching the opening number, yeah. I started crying. Nice. Because to me, it just didn't get any better than that. Nice. You know? Tears of joy. Yeah, I mean, and, and they were so good on the 07 tour. They were, they were decent, and they were kind of you know, what you'd expect on yeah. the 2010 tour. Yeah. But in 07, in my estimation, they surpassed any and all expectations. Wow. And the naysayers and whatnot. Everybody was in top form. Yeah, yeah. Now, if Wolf I could put this in a context, mm -hmm. this was 2007. Right. So David Lee Roth originally left Van Halen in, what, 84, 85? Yes. And you hadn't seen them during that nope. stretch. Nope. So you must have felt like in 2007, it was like, wow, I'm going to get a shot at this. Well, I tell you what, my... Uh, 
the only saving grace in between that giant time period is when they yeah. got together for the Greatest Hits album, okay. and they put out two new tracks, yeah. neither of which was bad, but again, it wasn't Old Van Halen, and they were supposed to get back together again, but it fell through almost immediately. Yeah, they didn't tour. They didn't, right. You didn't have a chance to see the original and then Van somewhere Halen. somewhere in, in that stretch from like late 90s now to 27, there was even the ill-fated uh, Diamond Dave and Sammy Hagar tour. Right, right. <laughs> which lasted three shows, I think, and that fell apart. Amazing that they even got three in. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, at, at this point, it was like, I never expected to see this. And it's here I am in this arena, and they're sounding much better than I ever thought that they would. Wow. It just got no better than that for me. That It was literally... Uh, off the bucket list level item at, at that point. You must have felt like you were riding a cloud. Yes, completely. Like, yeah, nice, nice. That's yeah, that's good stuff. I can I can totally picture that man. Right on, right, right. on. Um, all right, so you got a third one there, brother. I do. All right, and this is this is uh, I think a far more personal uh, experience for me um, to put it in a, its context. Uh, you and I have talked about, you know that I had a band in Los mm-hmm. Angeles for many years, about 12 years, and a music project, publishing company, the whole nine. Um, we got the project together starting in late 1993. By April of 94, we had enough songs together, we felt confident to go out and play a show. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we booked a show at a place called the Alligator Lounge. That in, sounds so L.A. Yeah, doesn't it? In West L.A., <laughs> that place no longer exists. Um, and we decided to do a warm-up show prior to... Uh-huh. And at the time, I was living in a three-bedroom house in Redondo Beach, a pretty good-sized living room, so we figured, perfect. We'll jam the band into one corner of the living room, mm-hmm. invite all our friends down. You know, it sounds get, like such a good plan already. Yeah, kind of <laughs> idealistic, you know. And, uh, hey, everybody, there's a shit cloud coming. Run for your lives. Uh, we got the ball rolling on this whole thing, and it turned out, unfortunately, to be the week that Kurt Cobain took himself out of the out of the equation so to speak that's some shitty timing yeah and it was like it was like wow okay um but show must go on you know so we were we pushed forward and uh we threw this party and and my band had its its opening its inaugural gig Mm -hmm. in my living room in Redondo Beach and uh typical of young band we had no sense of controlling our sound and started off playing way too loud got shut down by the police after three songs and uh, so we chilled for a little bit, and after about a, probably an hour and 90 minutes, we pulled out the acoustic instruments and decided, well, we're going to finish our set. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the living room, we had like 25, 30 people crammed in the living room, and there were people on the front porch and on the lawn and whatnot. Everybody kind of sat down and, you know, got their groove on, mm-hmm. you know, as we went into acoustic versions of our songs. And it was really cool. People were passing joints and passing bottle of wine. Wine, wine bottles, whatever. Um, we had a stone fireplace in the far end of the living room that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And it was just this really, really cool setting. And uh, so we managed to get the rest of our set off without getting busted. Right. And given what had been going on that week, we decided we wanted to close the set with a little tribute, a little nod to the now late Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. And uh, the song we picked was All Apologies off of their 93 album in Utero. And... Uh, I remember this almost like it happened yesterday. I just said, okay, folks, this is going to be our last song. Um, feel free to sing along if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's for Kurt. Right. And my guitar players played the opening notes to the song. And it's, it's, 
almost like simultaneously and synchron in, in, in synchronicity, the entire 25 or 30 people in the living room at the same time all stood up. Mm-hmm. You know, it was almost like it was choreographed. Right. And I got such a jolt of energy um, from them doing this. It, it, it literally almost blew me out of my shoes. It was mm-hmm. one of the most ex- amazing moments I've ever had in my life. And I suddenly uh, understood uh, a whole new part of the relationship between an audience and the band and what gets exchanged as far as the energy that goes back and forth. And, you know, it was the most amazing, amazing feeling I could possibly relate to anybody. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe in a cocaine kind of way, you know, for the rest of our 12 years, you know, me and the guys in the band were chasing that high. It was, it was just the most incredible feeling. And that made me understand how important music could be in a completely different way, a completely unique way in the relationship between the audience and the performers. You know, mm-hmm. that, was the, uh, that was the first time I'd felt it from a performer perspective. You know, I'd done plenty of stage stuff prior to, I was a theater major in college and whatnot. But that was the first time I experienced it in the context of music. Mm-hmm. And everybody sang along, you know, and we had this phenomenal, you know, three minute and 30 second moment together, however long right. the song is. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really, really changed my, my perspective on the whole being a musician thing. Sure. You sure. know, and uh, later on that night, we all, you know, crowded around the console TV we had up one end of the, uh, <laughs> the living room and saw Pearl Jam on Saturday Night, Saturday night Live. Uh-huh. That was, I think, their second second appearance on SNL. And uh, when they were doing the, uh, you know, good night everybody thing, mm-hmm. uh, and the band was on, on the stage with the cast, and every, that was the, the now legendary moment where Eddie pulled up his shirt, and he had the letter K right. with a circle around it over his heart, you know, and he kind of tapped it, you know, and acknowledging Kurt. I mean, that whole time, it was a very heady, heady time for all of us, you know, that we're at that age and, mm-hmm. and, and we're experiencing music and life, you know, in that context. And uh, it just, that contributed to the whole. But like I said, that really, really gave me uh, a different perspective on how important music could be. Mm-hmm. You know, not just to me, but to everybody, everybody involved in it. Right. You know, it was, it was really, really special. Good. You know? Three good instances there. Oh, thank you, Johnny. This it totally so far at least matches our personalities. Kind of, kind of. You the introspective there, one. Me the one looking for the cheap throw. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, my yeah, yeah. Let me thing, let me hear it. Yeah. You know, um, back in the '90s, I started going uh, a to bars and b to karaoke bars. All right. And um, from the very first time I was turned onto it, kind of became addicted instantly. This is what I call a target-rich environment. Nice. Because I always liked to perform, and up until I had discovered this concept, um, wasn't in front of the spotlight for, for many years. And then after my experience was doing this, I realized that I've never left being behind the microphone since right. then. Right, Because it gave me an outlet to entertain, express myself. I found out I had a decent singing voice that I didn't even know I had. Whole new side to Johnny Teflon, folks. Nice. And actually, that's... Really not where my nom de guerre comes from, but pretty close. They okay. were addressing me as Johnny Angel back then. Nice. Um, 
But yeah, not not a classically trained singer, but I was able to mimic a lot of famous singers. Okay. Those were the songs that I would do. Okay. And because I take I've always taken myself and everything else way too seriously. Right. I would never do a song where I kinda knew I would suck. Okay. Which unfortunately is what killed the concept of karaoke, the the drunken uh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. bachelorette parties, screeching love shack and the one dude that thinks he could do Justice with Stairway to Heaven. And, oh, God. You know, people who like to sing multiple times in one night. Oh, the California, like yeah. eight minutes worth uh, of. Ugh. God. But when I was doing it, I had a lot of fun. Some of the highlights, like I mentioned to you, my first night doing it was actually a karaoke contest. Okay. And it was shortly before Thanksgiving. I was still in college. And I won unexpectedly. And the prize that night wow. was this giant. Fresh turkey. <laughs> like, who wins a trophy and it's a turkey? I don't know. Nice. But, yeah, that, that was like how this whole nonsense started. Um, wound up uh, going on a, air quotes, date with one of the judges because she was so enamored with my performance. So, of course, my little reptilian no, brain is thinking to myself, Fuck me. You could go out, entertain, drink, and get laid. Nice. What's not to love about Seriously, this? Seriously, man. You yeah. got a turkey and a little leg. Right? All exactly. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it was one of the things that I just love doing, and I loved doing it for so many years afterwards until, you know, I became the karaoke host. Right, right. And just learned to absolutely hate the, the whole concept, <laughs> you know? And it was just like... People getting up there making asses of themselves. And, oh, and really what it turned into was that I realized that when it was new, they were all songs that people knew. Right. Okay? There was no yeah. fluff. It turned into like binders and binders and binders of songs and B-sides and everything. Yeah. And very simply, it went from a group entertainment action, yeah. okay, yeah. where people would sing along and clap and smile and everything, to a self-serving, self-publicizing yeah. uh, thing, kind of like Facebook. You know, like, oh, look, watch me sing this now, whether you like it or not. Jerking off in public. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the songs, especially newer music, sorry, this is how it is, don't lend themselves to a single singer getting up there yep. and, and doing it. It's either like a hip-hop song or it's got all this different, you know, weird music going on or whatever, the extended mix. and yeah. Yeah. It just killed it. So it was like... It was a social act that became popular because it was teaching people how to be social again. Right, and then right. it died for the exact same reason. Yeah. Because people turned it on themselves. Funny how that works. Isn't yeah, it? isn't yeah. it? But I have to say, it, it's got its place in my development. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I one form or another, I never left the microphone after that. Nice. So, nice. There you have I it. wish I could have been there on that night, man. Oh, see, man, it was see, a good time. I had see, my all. See Johnny Coon? <laughs> nice. And you must have been pretty good if the judge went home with you, man. Right? Decent, at least. Nice. And my first song I ever did was Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild. There we go. Yep. Nice. The song sings itself. Oh. The only thing I can remember the lyrics of at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> but now that we've reached the midpoint of the no, show. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What, what, what? Just so I can wrap my brain around this. Uh -huh. Is there a recording of Johnny Teflon doing Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild, floating around out there if in the not ether someplace? that night, certainly there are recordings from other nights. Wow. With other ditties by ZZ Top, right. Neil Diamond, All Frank right. Sinatra. Wow. They're out there. Oh They're my out goodness. there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like it or not. All right. As well as, you know, John had alluded to last week, several of my very blue comedy performances are out there. Oh my goodness. Yes, I haven't gotten rid of them all yet. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> so what do you say we do a palate-cleansing gem... I like the idea. ...from our genre of, quote-unquote, 
make-believe artist. I like that idea even more. I understand. Here's one that kind of... Yeah, they're, 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 they're make-believe. Yeah. Why don't you roll hey, with it? They, oh, that's right. This was my, my gem. This yes. was my call. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, this was, uh, this was something that we, uh, we plucked. I don't know if you could say plucked out of obscurity, but it was off a movie soundtrack. Plucked is a good phrase to use for this particular kinda, movie. It kind of yeah. is. It kind of <laughs> is. Um, and, and, yeah, it's a, it's a, a take on an absolute classic mm-hmm. uh, that I think people will recognize. Uh, I mean, it was a great movie. Yeah. But the music that came out of the movie, you know, and I think because T-Bone Burnett worked on the soundtrack. Right. And the Coen brothers did why. the movie, so how could you not love it? Yeah, yeah, you know. exactly. But, uh, but, yeah, this is a take on a, on a, on a traditional classic that uh, I think people will associate and get a good laugh out of um, the association uh, to uh, the actors that, mm-hmm. uh, that performed in the movie, um, principally... Um, George Clooney. George Clooney. Thank you. Yeah. Um, this is, of <laughs> course, from the soundtrack to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. This is a man of constant sorrow. And that's right, folks. So we're going to spin this tune for you right now. And, of course, we'll be back in a few minutes with some more things and stuff. In constant sorrow
I'm being too hard God's golden shore He'll meet you home God's golden shore Yeah <laughs> Just a toe-tapping good time right there Man, one of the best, best fictitious band names <laughs> Of all time. The soggy Bottom Boys. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that was the Soggy Bottom Boys. Is that a double entendre? Probably is. Wow. All right. Think about that for a minute. Oh, let's not think about and that. And the best part was the, the movie was decent as well. Movie you know? was fun. Movie was fun. The whole what thing it? drawn on parallels to the, uh, to the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah. yeah. Now, was that Ferrelli Brothers? Or was the or Coens? Was the I thought it was Cohen. Was it the Cohen's? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like Cohen's. Yeah, no, because Farrelly Brothers are too like over the top funny. I think it was yeah. Cohen's. Yeah, and I mean, just phenomenal cast. Oh yeah, totally. you know, great, great music. Um, yep. Again, the great Tebow and Burnett. Sure, you know, good stuff all the way yep. around. One of those we all like. Yes. So, so anyway, yeah. So yeah, fictitious <laughs> bands, fictitious bands, fictitious bands, and, that, and that's what our gems are all about. And that was the hidden agenda to the first gem, too, right? I believe. So yes. as our subject, we're going to talk a little bit about some of our favorite fictitious bands. And, yeah. and keep in mind, folks at home, sometimes bands start out as fictitious and then take on an actual life of their own, Bl blurring the lines I'm of sure reality. We got one or two entries fiction. that yeah, that, that cross that off. Absolutely. So again. Why don't you start, sir? What do no, you got for us? That's showbiz, folks. Well, um, yeah, number three choice, and it's funny because it was my choice just because I had this kind of reaction to it. <laughs> when you first told me about this, this topic, these guys were the first band I thought of. Uh -huh. And uh, this, of course, was the way out uh, from the classic, classic cartoon, the Flintstones. Flintstones, yeah. yeah. The way outs appeared in the, uh, in the sixth uh, season uh, <laughs> episode called The Masquerade Party. Wow. And, uh, you know, one song, one band, I think it was only one song, but, uh, but one of the things that, that, that strikes me to this day, obviously when I was a little kid, I didn't put this together, but if you go back and you watch it and you look what the wayouts are wearing, <laughs> all right, their costumes, they have these like spool-like stones uh -huh. um, that they're wearing, kind of like Michelin, the Michelin Man sure, effect, I sure. guess, and they have these little red hats, plunger hats, uh -huh. and... If you don't see a parallel between them and Devo, right, you right. are not paying attention. And leave know? it to the Flintstones to come up with something like that. I mean, because to me, the Flintstones literally are the prehistoric Simpsons. Yeah, because people literally. forget that or the they honeymooners. Were, yeah, it, yeah. And the Flintstones, as as were the Jetsons originally, those were prime time shows. Yeah, animation geared towards a, a mass or at least an adult, you know, yeah. audience. And they reflected so many trends of the day. Now, the oh, Flintstones yeah. had quite a few musical episodes. They did. They did. And they would always bring in, like, current celebrities with funny names. Yeah. Like, Tony Curtis <laughs> yeah. would be Stony Curtis and, like, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. But I know that there was a musical episode when Fred was something resembling Elvis. Yep. yep. Um, Pompadour. Right. Yeah. And the oh, Jetsons yeah. did that eep, eek, oop, op, op. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Jet Screamer. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Remember that guy? Yeah. And, like, you would say, he like... I can't believe, John, this, this song is still stuck in my head after all these years. <laughs> no. I mean, talk about an effective earworm. Oh, I know. They did something right if right. 30 years on or whatever, yep. you say fictitious bands, the first band I think about, The Way sure. and, and the yeah, magic. I mean, for me, what makes it a gem is just the pure magic of pop culture. Something so obscure like this. Yep. But you know all our asses have seen it or heard it. Oh, yeah. So when you said it, I immediately started laughing. So that, that got an easy in. Yep. I was like, yep, 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 makes sense. Yeah, that was... Now, was that Hanna-Barbera? <laughs> yeah. Hanna, yeah. 
the empire of Hanna Barbera. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, seriously, they were behind everything. Everything, cartoon yeah, literally back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All so, right. The way out, folks. Nice. The way out. Hey, he's setting the bar early now. There we go. What do you got, John? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll come back to it. My number three uh, from uh, a Christmas special from 1977. Okay. Uh, featuring Muppets, which really took on a life of its own. as Kind of like the Christmas story. Took on a life of its own. It got more and more popular every friggin' year. All right. It is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Nice. And I'm not talking about Emmett Otter and his... Sweet little jug band. No, no. My thing is the last act of the Battle of the Bands yep. featured the River Bottom Nightmare Band. Nice. Featuring all the Muppets and the animals that weren't cute and cuddly, yep. like the yep. weasel, the snake, some kind of fish doing something. Those guys were badass. Badass. Man. They were. And they came out like a vintage 70s acid glam rock band <laughs> and just yep. tore it. Oh, man, the keyboard player absolutely right? killed me. River Bottom the, Nightmare Band. Yeah, the silver platform <laughs> shoes and the yes. cape, you know. Vision it was to, like Elton John with too much testosterone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was like a, a vision of, uh, you know, yes on really bad acid, you know. <laughs> but yeah, absolute classic. Good call, man. That's Good my call. number three. And like over it. to you. All right. Um, you know, we were talking about... Uh, uh, Bands and projects that blurred the blurred the line between reality and fiction. Mm -hmm. I think these guys were the epitome of that. And of course, I'm talking about the monkeys. Yes, you know. I mean, and I say yes because I am, as you know, a fan. Yeah. of the monkeys. And you look at you look. I mean, we're talking about a quote unquote fictitious band yep. that sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 million albums. You know, they did, I think they did five albums total. Right. Um, the fictitious band outlasted the TV show that launched yep. them. And many of its handlers and producers' careers. Oh, yeah. It's like the Frankenstein monster in the musical creation form. Yeah, <laughs> That yeah. bucked the, the advice and the stipulations of their management. Says, mm -hmm. no, we can do our own songs. Oh, yeah. It took them, I think, until the third album yep. before they, they were allowed to play their own instruments and... and that respect, I mean, I think the, uh, if I remember correctly, the first uh, album they did, the, the studio band that was the Monkees, if you will, was uh, the Candy Store Prophets. Um, <laughs> the second one, off their second album, they still weren't allowed to, to play their own instruments, right. was a, the legendary, legendary studio musicians uh, that were known as the Wrecking, Wrecking Crew. Crew. Yep, and uh, it wasn't until the third album that, you know, Peter Tork and... Mike Nesmith, Davy mm -hmm. Jones, and and who am I forgetting? Uh, Mickey Dolans. Mickey Dolans. Yep. Oh, God, forget Mickey. We're allowed to play their own their own instruments, right. and uh, it it worked. And you even know, more they kept so, going. not just their own instruments, but the instruments that they knew how to play, and they didn't have to worry about optics. Yeah, you know, because originally they wanted to put Davy Jones playing the drums yep. until they realized it was too short and they wouldn't be able to see him. Right, <laughs> you know. Mickey Dolenz was able to play the piano on the drums, and the operating plan was for him to like teach Peter Tork this now, yeah. like as they went. Yeah. And he did, in fact, teach him how to play um, the bass because he was a regular guitar player by trade. Yeah. And then they they switch around Mike Nesmith and all, but it's like no matter how thousands of different ways they could have only screwed this up, it succeeded. It worked. It totally <laughs> worked. You know, and it, it's you know the monkeys I think own. Uh, the distinction of having the most Hollywood stories and rumors, you know, <laughs> around them and what was real and what was not. Right. Um, you know, just to just to clear the air on some of them, uh, three of the four guys were musicians. Yep. When they got hired to do the gig, 
The only guy who wasn't was Davy Jones, and he was an accomplished actor by the time right. the monkeys came around. He had been nominated for a Tony Award, uh-huh. I think, for his work in... Uh, he was the Artful Dodger, okay, yeah. I think. Oliver. In, yep. Yeah, in the, in, the, uh, in the stage version of Oliver Twist. I mean, these guys weren't, you know, stooges. They, they pulled off the street. Right. Um, you know, these guys were... Performers and they the funniest were, they part were was that you know they would socialize with the Beatles and they would socialize with Jimi Hendrix. Oh, absolutely! And they all got along and they all respected the shit out of each oh, other. Oh yeah, they were allowed in those circles. <laughs> they totally were. And so when uh, they say the throwaway line in Dumb and Dumber, when they're looking at the jukebox and they're like, "Oh, the Monkees," I hear they were a major influence on the Beatles. <laughs> It didn't work that way, but they're not completely they far off. Sort I mean, of, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think it's it's probably well known that they were based on the Beatles of the right. film A Hard Day's Night. Right. You know, that's where it came across, and uh, and you know, it obviously evolved from there to a point where these guys were welcome in yep. those circles. Um, amongst the other rumors uh, floating around that may or may not have been factual, um, David Bowie became David Bowie because his real name, David Jones, mm-hmm. was already taken. Imagine if that's true. Yeah. Then and again, I, like in, in Wales, there's like thousands of, of David Jones. This is true. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a fairly common name. The British name. military used to put a number after their name because there were so many of them. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> another, uh, another legend surrounding them that may or may not be true. Apparently, the original idea of the producers was to take an actual band, in this case, The Love and Spoonful, uh-huh. and make them the monkeys huh. on the TV show. But then we never got those amazing Loving Spoonful exactly. tracks. Exactly, yeah. You know? That would have changed history significantly. Right. One of which is the backdrop for our uh, skit, which we haven't done in a while. Mm. It depends how you look at it. Yes, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, these guys were... Uh, were they started as one thing mm-hmm. and evolved. Uh, don't you we know? all, though? Don't yeah, we all? well, you'd like to think. You'd like to think. So. Well, my, uh, my number two is, uh, well, this one's quick and easy because we opened with her. There we go. Uh, little Miss Susie Quattro. Yeah, she was included in my thing. And, uh, I mean, as a kid, she looked phenomenal. My only, you know, criticism, if you will, of her whole appearance on, on Happy Days okay. was that if that was taking place, you know, in, say, 1960, yeah, you said late 50s, yeah. I said early 60s. Yeah, Still, 1960 Milwaukee, Wisconsin did not have that kind of like amp set up Probably for any of their Probably not. Probably I mean, that was like not. Back to the Future shit to them. I'm I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah, they had badass chicks in yeah. Milwaukee, Wearing Wisconsin leather. in yeah. 1960. <laughs> not even a little. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so but back still, to you. An inspired call, I must say. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. My number one choice, and you want to talk about low hanging fruit, right? We um, both got that for the last yeah, one. Yeah, Spinal Tap. Of course, you yes. had to go with Spinal Tap. If for no other reason than I think it was Tom Petty who was the first musician to come out and say after that movie was, was released and widely circulated right. that that wasn't funny. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's close to home. A lot of musicians would take that same perspective. Right. You know, it just... It was squirm humor. Yep, you know, exactly. You watched it, and it yep. was funny, but it made you squirm if you were a musician. And it's funny because that troupe of actors and, and comedians that has no name and all the movies that they've done where they skewer another segment of the entertainment field, yep. they all have that, that squirm yes. humor. And people that don't... And this is, to me, that the master of satire 
is that people don't know the ins and outs of that niche still find it hysterical. Oh, yeah. And the people that do live within that little niche and that sub-community are pissed off. The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said, shit sandwich. Well, that's that's <laughs> like the talent of these guys, yeah. is they get it across to people who aren't in on the joke. Right. And they get the joke. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, having, again, you know, done the musician thing in L.A. myself, for a significant amount of time, understand where Tom Petty was coming from. Yep. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily the obvious stuff like the exploding drummer or the guy, you know, at one point he gets stuck inside the, uh, the, uh, the cage. Right, or right. When they close it on him and whatnot. These go to 11. <laughs> it was other stuff like the girlfriend, uh-huh. you know, coming in and, and creating tension between... These actual tropes that oh, happen yeah. all the time. Yes, yes. And... That's that's not. They didn't make that shit up. That's reality. Right. And uh, and yeah, if you've experienced that, it's yeah. going to make you uncomfortable. And it let's truly face it, is. And no one wants to see their vocation made fun of. No. You know? No. My father was a military man. As, as told me when I was growing up, he, he never enjoyed movies that would make fun of the military. Yeah. Like Stripes and things like that, or Private Benjamin. Yeah. And I, I kind of laughed at that because those movies were hysterical. And yet, this is how bizarre I am. I hate like tongue-in-cheek superhero movies. Okay, because yeah. <laughs> I enjoy a serious, like, well-thought-out yeah, superhero movie. Yeah, and when they just throw any shit up there to make fun of it, I get a little pissed it's off. Offensive. <laughs> it's offensive. It's offensive. Yes, yes. I know I exactly where you're coming from with that. How dare they? How fucking dare they? Right? Yeah. So yes, the uh, Spinal Tap just you know the all-time oh, sure, fictional sure. band. And I mean the the term Spinal Tap got. <laughs> you know, incorporated into pop culture. You know, guys will describe, you know, musicians will describe things as like a spinal tap-like experience. Right. You know, I think Pearl Jam, you know, made reference to spinal tap given that they've gone through, what, five, six different drummers? (laughs) You know, in Pearl Jam 20, you know, they make reference to it. So, yeah, I mean, props to the the creators, Mm -hmm. if you will, behind this for nailing it like they did. All right. Where's my uh, number three? Again, from the family of low-hanging fruit, I'm going with the Blues Brothers Band. Yes. Because, again, here's uh, a music project that started as a skit on SNL. Yeah. With the very talented Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. And took on a life of its own because, you know, people just loved, and we've seen this on SNL in our lifetime, skits that get so popular, they warrant a movie. Yeah. No SNL movie, with the exception of maybe Wayne's World, will ever touch the Blues Brothers. Oh, yeah. Because it was an event, all yep. right? Yep. One unused prophylactic. One soiled. So you got it, those personalities. You got so much good music yeah. in it. And people forget that their band was like a laundry list of accomplished mm-hmm. musicians. Like to, to name a few, um, like Donald Duck Dunn yeah, on Steve the bass. Yeah, Steve Cropper. Right, yeah. Steve Cropper. Uh, Matt, Matt Guitar, Guitar Murphy, Murphy. Yeah. <laughs> on the, the horns players, the, the, the keyboard players, mm-hmm. and a lot of which would work in the Saturday Night Live band. Oh yeah, you know, even Paul Schaefer wasn't in a movie would you know lead these guys. Yeah, and it just took on a life of its own. So they here crossed you got this over. Movie. They yes. truly crossed over because look, the story was fun, the acting was good. There were so many celebrity cameos from the time in yeah. there. They you know skewered 
an easy to hate group, neo Nazis. You know yeah. what's not to love about it? And they had a hit album. Yes, briefcase full of blues, and it just took on a life of its own. Yeah, and to this day, yeah, the Blues Brothers is one of those movies that if you're surfing through the channels and it comes on. Your ass is going to watch it. Yep. At yep. least to get through the Ray Charles, like, the music store scene or, or Aretha Franklin in a diner, you know. Yeah. Well, it, it was it very much kind of the antidote to Spinal Tap, you know, because <laughs> I enjoy watching the Blues Brothers movie. I've seen it a million times. Yep. Every single time, I enjoy it a little bit more. And, uh, and yeah, no, no disrespect to the creative minds behind Spinal Tap. And it's kind of funny that all of these guys have an association with Saturday Night Live. Right. You know. Yep. But the Blues Brothers movie is fun to watch if you're a musician. Yep. It really is. It's, it's almost like a best-case scenario, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, just, just good fun all the way around. Yep. And, uh, and, yeah, another, another, you know, oops, we created a monster scenario. Yeah, you totally. Because it, it, it blew up far beyond, you know, the SNL skit. Yep. You know, it really did. So... Good so, stuff, John. Yeah, good so call. Good stuff. I'm sure yes. people are thinking now, well, I remember this. That, what, there are really so many. That's why it was fun to do. Yep. Um, we had um, other ones that didn't quite make it, so who knows? Maybe we'll revisit this again. Yeah. A lot of honorable mentions. A lot of honorable yes. mentions. Yes. And now we find ourselves in the uh, unenviable position of being short for time in this episode. So we're going to switch things up a little bit. Now, we've got a final gem, which is so good to get to. Yep. Uh, and we'll probably... You know, feed, feed out the door right after that. I'm thinking so. So in, in the meantime, just to give people an idea, uh, stuff coming up, both the Foo Fighters and Green Day episodes of the Classic Rock Showcase are in the can All right. and ready to get played. Nice. And yeah, Foo Fighters got in not only because they got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not they only because I love they them, did. but yeah. they've been putting out music since 95. I know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Right? It's crazy. Uh, so yeah, they, they had to go in. Um, so there's always like that kind of fun stuff happening. Yeah. Um, and, so uh, keep on listening, folks. Yeah, there's always something interesting going on in yep. Big Boom Radio. I'm, I'm loving the fact that you know you're busting with Green Day, a little Green Day. I had to. I know that they're not your favorite band. <laughs> and as I say in the intro, yeah, because it, it's look, it's not about me. Yep. There are a lot of things in this world that are about me. This radio station and this programming is not. It's about the music and the people that enjoy it. Yeah. And uh, that's a line I will not cross. So. They, you, they've you, made if huge you've got contributions. The cat, yeah, you've got the catalog, man. Then nice. you get in. Simple yeah. as that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the final gem? Since again, it's out of your magic hat. Well, this this just <laughs> took a lot a lot of time and a lot of debate. You know, we, <laughs> little we, debate, we, little bit. We threw around quite a few songs going back and forth between uh, us, and uh, it's you know one of those things where it's like no matter which song you choose, you're going to kind of go, oh, but this, or, right, oh, right. Uh, yeah, you know. But at some point. You got to make a decision. Yep. You know, you just have to. So, you know, in a nod to that band that most blurred the lines between fiction and reality, we're going to close with a little monkeys action, folks. So good. And uh, and I hope you enjoy it. I know John's going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy it too. We're going to go with the last train to Clarksville. Yes, one of their uh, timeless hits. You know, as far as I'm concerned, sounds as good today as it did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Absolutely does. Great melody. Great to sing along to. Yeah. So again, we're going to close out with that. So then, until we see you once again, folks. I'm Johnny Teflon, and I'm Michael Sean Lee, and we'll see you on the flip side. i
I don't know if I 